Hello and welcome to the Calvary Podcast. We're so glad you've joined us today. Whether you're listening from across the street or around the world, we pray this message will encourage you, build your faith, and bless your life. Well, anyways, if it's your first time, welcome to Calvary. It's our mission to love God, love people, and change the world. So whether you're here in the room or joining us online, Facebook, YouTube, podcast, so glad that you could be with us. And like Pastor Sean said earlier, if you're new here, I'd love to meet you in person. I'll take that card from you and give you a, a gift as our thanks for you being here today. Now, before we jump into the message, just wanted to talk a little bit about what many of you have seen in the news over the last little bit. Now, uh, candidly, I don't know what's been going on in the last 12 hours or so, so Things could have changed, and I'm not sure uh, what all's happening, but you've seen the reports of the terrorist group Hamas that has attacked the land and the people of Israel. Uh, as of last night, hundreds of Israelis were confirmed dead, and uh, in the most evil and heinous way, I might add, uh, kind of a surprise attack on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, by the way, one of the great feasts uh, of the Jewish people. And uh, if you haven't seen the pictures online, uh, I'm not sure if I'd encourage you to or not, because they're, they're pretty horrific. And they're not going after just soldiers, but elderly people and little children and, and women. And they are kidnapping them, abusing them, uh, killing them, and then sometimes parading their dead bodies into the streets as trophies. It's a very sad and uh, heartbreaking situation, and we need to keep Israel in our prayers. All the way back to the times of Abraham, God said, I'm going to bless those who bless Israel, but I'll curse those who curse Israel. We want to be on the blessing side of that, in case you were wondering. And uh, while, while the uh, topic of Israeli versus Palestinian control over the, the physical land is one of the most debated topics uh, it, it shouldn't really be a, a political debate, although it is. It's really more of a biblical thing. In the Bible, God chose the Jewish people as his chosen people. And now before you become offended at that, um, you too are God's chosen people if you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Okay? He has offered the gospel of Jesus Christ to both the Jew and the Gentile. Gentile, that's most of us, non-Jewish people. But when it comes to the end times events that we find in scripture, Israel must survive. There must be an actual land of, and nation and people of Israel for the end times to unfold like scripture tells us to. And many have said that God's covenant that goes all the way back to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob is no longer relevant now that Jesus has come to the earth, died and rose again. They call it replacement theology. That all the promises and the covenant that God made to the Jewish people in the Bible no longer apply to Jewish people. They, they apply to the church. That's us. And so God has just kind of dismissed and excused and cast away the Jews. But scripture doesn't endorse that teaching. In fact, Paul asked the question kind of rhetorically in Romans chapter 11. He said, has God cast away the Jewish people? And then he answered with a, a very definitive answer. He said, certainly not. By no means. And it's incredible how Israel just keeps coming back 
and coming back and coming back. I'm sure it frustrates the enemy. They, they just won't go away. I mean, think about it. What other nation has survived as a distinct race after 400 years of slavery, several deportations, two total destructions, nearly 2,000 years of dispersion across the world, plus a holocaust. I mean, the only explanation can be God. Jehovah, Yahweh, has been looking out for them and has his hand of protection surrounding the people of Israel. God has not forgotten his people. By the way, nor has he forgotten you. That's why in 1948, Israel became a nation once again, against all odds. I'd say that was one of the main reasons for the replacement theology is like, well, in the end times, there has to be a nation of Israel. And from about AD 70 until 1948, there was no nation of Israel. That's one of the major signs of the end times was the regathering of the nation of Israel. And God is going to continue to do everything he can to get the people of Israel to recognize Jesus Christ as the one true Messiah. It's also one of the major reasons for the seven-year tribulation. And by the way, we believe that we're going to be raptured out of here before the tribulation. If you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, there's going to be a great escape, uh, the great rapture. Uh, but during that seven-year tribulation, there'll be three and a half years of relative peace. The Antichrist will confuse and trick and deceive the Jews into thinking that he's negotiated a, a peace treaty, but at the three and a half year mark, all hell is going to break loose. But God is going to do everything he can, even during that tribulation time, to show the Jewish people that, hey, it's Jesus Christ. It's been him all along. You've been looking for somebody else, but it's been Jesus. And so we want to be in the camp that stands with Israel uh, because the land belongs to God, and thus it belongs to Israel. And that's not because I said it. Uh, you can look in, if you have time, Ezekiel 36 is a very fascinating chapter, actually. And God clearly says in Ezekiel 36 that the land, that, that the physical land there, the plot of land there just off the Mediterranean Sea in modern-day Israel is my land. That's what God said. And there's been all sorts of fighting for generations and centuries and millennia of who owns the land. And one group will say, well, we were here first. No, but we were here before you. Well, we were here before that. And there's all this back and forth. And God says in Ezekiel, hey, guys, it actually belongs to me. And I have declared that I want the Israeli people, I want the Jews to possess the land. They are my sons. They are my daughters. And so it, it's, it's, the right, it's not necessarily the right thing to do politically, but it's the right thing to do scripturally and spiritually and biblically to stand with Israel. Okay? It might be politically incorrect for some of you here. I'm not trying to offend you or ruffle your feathers. This is not a Democrat, Libertarian, or Republican issue. This is a biblical issue. And God has said, that is my land, that is my people. And if you want to live a blessed life, bless Israel. So we want to be praying for them. You know, anti-Semitism is going to be on the increase. It's going to be ramped up as the end of times draw near. In fact, toward the very end... Basically, the entire world is going to turn their back on Israel. 
They're going to have no friends at the end of the day. And it seems like we are getting closer and closer to that reality. And uh, that's not meant to scare you, but that's meant to prepare you. Because these are exciting times because Jesus said, I believe it was in the book of Luke, when you see all these end time things happening, don't freak out. Don't run for the hills. But lift up your eyes because your redemption draws nigh. So we are looking forward to that day. I tell you, before we get into the message, let's pray for Israel. Will you join with me? Lord, right now, we just lift up the people and the nation of Israel. We ask for your hand of protection upon them, upon the, the military and the elderly and the women and the children. I pray that you would keep them out of harm's way. Lord, we pray for a divine iron dome if you will, to surround them, to surround that nation. I pray that you would give supernatural wisdom to the leaders like Benjamin Netanyahu and the political leaders and the military leaders. Lord, we pray in the name of Jesus that sooner rather than later that their eyes would be opened and they would recognize Jesus Christ is the one true Messiah, the one that they have been hoping for and praying for and waiting for. We also pray that you would open the eyes of those terrorists in Jesus' name. Lord, you came and you died for them too. So I just pray for divine intervention there that they would literally drop their weapons and say, oh my goodness, Jesus Christ is Lord. And they would surrender to you once and for all. And Lord, we thank you for your word that says no weapon formed against us, no weapon formed against them will prosper. We speak it now in the mighty, strong, powerful name of Jesus. Amen. 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 Well, you can turn to the book of Revelation chapter 3. We are in a series based on the letters that Jesus sent to the seven churches of Asia Minor. We are calling the series Dear Church. And now we know that these letters came directly from Jesus because if you have a red letter Bible edition, you'll see that these letters are written in red. And anytime we see something in the Bible that's written in red, we know that it comes from Jesus himself. You know, there's some other places in the Bible that are written in red too, especially a lot of the Gospels. A lot of the Gospels are written in red. The Gospels are the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We see a lot of Jesus's red letters there. And uh, to be honest, Those red letters have kind of a different tone than the tone we find here in Revelation 2 and Revelation 3. Like if we look at Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says things like this, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, blessed are the merciful, blessed are the pure in heart, blessed are those who persecuted. And if you're like me, I like those words from Jesus. Those words are, they're nice, they're comforting, they're assuring. But in Revelation 3, where we land today, we are now decades later. We're at the end of the first century. The churches have been established for quite some time. And now over time, they've gotten off track in some areas and they need some recalibration to get things right with the Lord. And so as parents, depending on the issue, sometimes we have to use a different tone and a different method, right? 
So those of you that have toddlers in the home and you're teaching your young ones something, you'll, you'll use probably a lighter, softer tone, maybe a higher tone. You know, maybe you're dealing with your two and three-year-olds and teaching him or her the colors. Now this is red, rojo, right? This is blue and yeah, this is yellow. This is verde, this is green. Right now, now you see that red glow on the, the stove. That means we don't touch that baby. We don't do that. But as they get older, we sometimes have to use different tone, right? When they're 16 years old, we don't talk to them like they're four anymore, right? Okay, you're 16 now. Do I need to tell you every single time that your clothes go in the closet and the trash in the trash can? Can I get a witness, somebody? Right? Well, listen, Jesus is the same loving Savior in Revelation as he is in the Gospels, but the church isn't a baby anymore. He has some grown-up things that he needs to share with these churches, and today we make our way to the city of Sardis. Now, we've been making our way clockwise, and today we'll be looking at uh, the Sardis Community Church, if you will. It's about 50 miles east of Smyrna, there you can see on the map. Now, if you're from around here and you're like me and you see this word, especially at noon, you are thinking, Sardis. <laughs> Y'all are with me today, I can feel it. If you haven't been to Sardis, we are talking some incredible charcoal chicken, right? Peruvian chicken that is unbelievable. Now, if you end up going there today, you make sure to tell them that I sent you there and I give... <laughs> Ferguson a break, okay? Okay, this is, not the, this is not Sardis with Peruvian chicken. This is Sardis, okay? Not Sardis, Sardis. And 700 years before John wrote the Revelation, Sardis was one of the great cities of their time. It was at an elevation of about 1,500 feet, actually, and was nearly impenetrable. As that part of the town there on the top filled up, they, they'd later have to fill in the valley below. But the original Sardis was surrounded, there you can see, with, with three huge walls and cliffs that were uh, nearly perpendicular and almost impossible to climb. Uh, it was also a wealthy city. They built a very impressive synagogue, a place of worship, roughly the size of a football field today. Now, there's not much of it left today, but uh, you can see some of the ruins still there. Uh, they suffered a devastating earthquake, as much of the region did early in the first century. And Caesar Augustus, the same one that, that gave the census when Jesus was born, uh, he sent a lot of relief aid to help rebuild the city. And they ended up worshiping Caesar and putting his likeness on their coins, well, in Revelation 3, Jesus writes to the Sardis community church that is now in decline. They were socially alive, but spiritually they were dead. In fact, of all the seven letters that we find in Revelation 2 and 3, this is the, the most severe of the seven. The Sardis church overall was in such condition that Jesus couldn't really commend them for anything. If you've been here for much of this series, you'll know that most of these letters come in three parts. Jesus introduces himself, and then he gives a commendation, a correction, and counsel. 
Well, in this letter, he finds nothing really that he can commend them for. He jumps right over the commendation part and right to the correction part. We find that in verse 1, Revelation chapter 3 reads this. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him, him is Jesus, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. You see, Sardis had a program. Sardis had people. Sardis had pastors and leaders. They may even have had a, a music program. From the outside, everything looked good at Sardis Community Church. They had a reputation for being alive. They had a reputation for being vibrant. But Jesus has this ability to look past the mask, look beyond the veneer, look beyond all of that and see what's really going on. And his assessment was that they weren't alive at all, that they were dead. You could call them the church of the walking dead. They socially were alive, but spiritually dead. And you know what that tells us today? It tells us that you can look like you're alive. You can talk like you're alive. You can dress like you're alive. You can even carry your Bible like you're alive, but find yourself in a spiritual coma. And so you might be asking, well, how did Sardis get to this place? How could this happen? I think some of the answer we can find in the first part of this very first verse. You know, per usual, Jesus identifies himself and he leaves them with some sort of customized description. And notice here in verse one, he says, of him who has the seven spirits. Of him who has the seven spirits. Now, remember, seven is the number of completeness or perfection. God created the world in seven days. He finished his creation on day seven, seven days of the week, the seven-year tribulation, the seven letters to the seven churches that we find in the book of Revelation. Seven means perfection, completeness, wholeness. So when Jesus says the seven spirits, I believe that he's referring to the completeness, the wholeness, the fullness of the Holy Spirit. So Sardis has these activities going on. They're meeting together regularly, but they lacked something. They lacked the Spirit of God. They didn't have the fullness. They didn't have the completeness of the Holy Spirit active and alive in their church. Maybe they thought they didn't need him anymore. Maybe they got used to being saved. Maybe they got used to the, the comforts and the wealth that they experienced there in Sardis. There was no real, real persecution. So why do we really need to build a relationship with the Holy Spirit? Why do we need to put our faith and our trust in the Spirit of God? What they didn't understand was that fullness and completeness of the Holy Spirit is where the life comes from. So one of the desires of Kelly in my heart is that that this would be a church where the Holy Spirit is welcome to do what he wants to do. 
that he is welcome here at our church. And the longer I've served him, the longer I've been on this earth, the, the more I realize I need to have the active life of the Holy Spirit in my life. Otherwise, I fall asleep spiritually. Otherwise, I become spiritually dead. I need his fire and his passion burning in my life. When someone comes to our church, they need to be met with more than good music, more than free coffee, more than mints in the bathroom. We need to know that the Holy Spirit is present in our midst. See, his presence should be our passion. We want to embrace the gifts and the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. We recognize that everything we do is dependent on his power, active and alive in our lives. Now, in the previous four churches, Jesus made it a point to mention either the church's persecution by culture or the church's attack by the enemy, by, by Satan. Well, here we read to the letter of the Sardis Community Church that Satan is not attacking them and culture is not persecuting them. Can you guess why that might be? It's because they're spiritually asleep. They're spiritually dead. There's no reason for Satan to attack a dead church. There's no reason for culture to persecute a church that's asleep. Right? They were doing their thing. They, they had church. It was probably a large church, maybe growing, probably had some money, a good reputation, and everyone thinking that everything was a-okay, not realizing that in reality, they were dead. Just like Sardis the city, Sardis the church were past their prime and found themselves in decline all the while thinking everything was okay. Their wealth, their easy money, their loose living and loose morals made them soft and vulnerable and they had this false sense of security. But in reality, we're in decay. Does that, does that sound familiar to anyone? Sardis assimilated to the culture that was around them. There was no real difference between those in the church and those outside of the church, the unbelievers in society. The church had just become another club, another social thing to do in the community. Now, we're not saying that wealth and comfort is a bad thing. In fact, they're not. In and of themselves, those aren't bad things. But if not managed correctly, it can lead to apathy. It can lead to complacency and vulnerability. And for Sardis Community Church, they were asleep. Now, remember the city's strategic location. It was about 1,500 feet in elevation on the top of a mountain and how it was nearly impenetrable, next to impossible to conquer. But did you know that they were conquered? And did you know how this city, Sardis, came to be conquered? The guards fell asleep. The guards fell asleep. In fact, by the time John had written this book of Revelation, Sardis had been captured twice. Both times, it was as a result of laziness and complacency. 
and those that were supposed to be on watch had fallen asleep. And if you think about it, it's actually a, a brilliant strategy by the enemy. Right? I'm just going to lull my enemy into a sense of comfort and complacency. And it begs the question for us, as a church, as people of God, have we become lazy? Have we become too comfortable? Have we become accustomed to luxury and coziness that we've been lulled to sleep spiritually? Have we been so integrated and melded into the rest of culture that they don't even need to persecute us? Satan doesn't even need to send his attacks because we've already been lulled to sleep. We've already lost our effectiveness and our fervor and our fire and our power. Listen, people should be able to tell a difference between us and them. It should be a good thing. It's not that I'm better than you, right? But there should be a contrast between us in the church and them in the world because the Spirit of God is alive in us. His presence should be our passion. Jesus told Sardis, if you remember in verse one, you have a reputation. Jesus said, you have a reputation of being alive, yet you are dead. One of the worst things I can think of is for God to say something about us that's different than what people says about us. That our character isn't matching what our public reputation is. That the internal isn't living up to the external. Now, all the way back to the Old Testament, when Samuel was about to anoint young David as the next king of Israel, he paraded all of Jesse's sons, and, and uh, Samuel was thinking, surely this is the one, look how tall he is. Well, surely this is the one, look how handsome he is. Surely this is the one, look how strong he is. And finally, uh, he ran out of brothers. Uh, Jesse, is there anybody else? And he calls for young David, who's out in the field, probably only 12 or 13 years old at the time. And when he comes in, God tells Samuel, now that's the one. And he kind of corrected Samuel in that moment. He said, man looks on the outside, but God looks at the heart. How many of us realize that, that man's evaluation isn't always the same as God's evaluation? And what God says about us should carry a whole lot more weight than what people say about us. And, and you know, uh, whether, whether we live like it or not, in the end, God's evaluation is what matters the most, right? <clears throat> and my prayer is that, is that uh, people aren't talking about me and my reputation and us and our reputation. Of course, we want to have a good reputation. Proverbs speaks about that. You want to live in a way that has a good reputation, but a church that is alive and walking in the completeness and fullness of the Holy Spirit and shining the light should be making Jesus famous. People aren't talking about me and you. They're talking about Jesus, right? Not to us, but to him be the glory. His name, his reputation is what really draws the people in. Now, Paul warned Timothy to be on the lookout for these actors for these fakers who are, uh, have a reputation of being alive, but on the inside they're dead. Look at what he said in 2 Timothy 3, 5. They will act religious, 
but they will reject the power that could make them godly. Stay away from people like that. Jesus says, stay away from the counterfeit because he's looking for the real thing. He's looking for the authentic. He's not looking for the fake and the phony and the facade and the pretend Christian. See, Sardis, they were good at going through the motions. But somewhere along the way, they slipped into apathy. They fell asleep. But Jesus didn't leave them without a chance of coming back. And so he kind of gives them, I call it a, a combination, correction and counsel. We find that in the next verse, verse two. He says, wake up. Some of you, my sermon has put you to sleep. Wake up, all right? <clears throat> wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. There we see that theme of completeness again, right? Now I wonder, do any of you have Heavy sleepers at your house. Yeah, I see some parents with your hands lifted. You have some heavy sleepers. Maybe your spouse is a heavy sleeper. At the Ferguson household, we've got some heavy sleepers too. In fact, you can go and try to wake them up in the morning. You can turn the light on. You can turn the fan on. You can tickle their feet. You can sick Dolly on them. Dolly's our little four-pound Yorkie. You can put Dolly, and they, they won't budge. In fact, in our house, we have such heavy sleepers that, that we've got some sleepwalkers and some sleep talkers. <laughs> Y'all have those too, I guess, right? <laughs> I mean, they'll carry on full-on conversations with you and not even realize that they're asleep. Or they'll fall asleep in one room, like Benny did the other night, wake up in his sister's room five hours later. He's like, how did I get here? I don't know. Well, here's something about our sleep time. When you're asleep, you don't know what's going on around you. Right? You're oblivious to the things that are actually right in front of your face. And here's where it can get a little dangerous. You can be asleep and even walk and talk and have no clue what's really going on. You see where I'm going with this. Spiritually speaking, Sardis had some heavy sleepers. And Jesus says, wake up, you sleepers. Wake up before it's too late. Do you even realize what's going on around you? You are in spiritual decay and spiritual decline. Sardis Community Church needed a revival. They needed to be awakened from their sleep and needed to be revived. I would say that the American church finds herself in a similar position. I would say that the American church needs to wake up, needs a revival. Did you know it's not unbelievers that need revival, right? It's God's people that need revival. See, the, the, the word re, the revive, re, to go back, Vive, to live, okay, to live again, right, to come back to life. It implies that we were alive at some point but had fallen asleep. So many in today's church, we need to be revived and then take Jesus to the hurting world around us. 
Jesus goes on in verse three and says, remember. So he says, wake up. Now, remember what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Jesus told them, remember the truths that they learned at first. Get back to what it was like back then. Get back to the basics, right? Part of the reason they were asleep, part of the reason they were dead is because they forgot about their first love, similar to the church at Ephesus that we studied a few weeks ago. They needed to remember, they needed to refocus, they needed to repent. If you're taking notes, those are some good words to write under the word revival. These are good things for revival to take place. Refocus. We need to refocus our eyes on Jesus. Over time, our eyes can wander. We get our eyes off of Jesus and on the things of this world. We need to remember. We need to remember our first love. We need to remember solid doctrine and living pure lives. And we need to repent. It's what Jesus said too. Repent means to take 180 degrees. So I'm going this way, I repent, now I'm going this way. We repent, we turn from our sin, and we turn toward Jesus. You might wanna write those down in your, in your journal if you need a guide to help you through some prayer time, if you want something to help you from falling asleep spiritually. Jesus goes on in verse four. Yet, you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. This is kind of good news, because not everyone at Sardis Community Church has fallen asleep. Even among the dead, there was a remnant of people who stayed alive. There was a remnant of people who stayed loyal and faithful to Jesus Christ. By the way, that's the group that we want to be in, if you were wondering. We want to be in that group. Now, in this scripture, Jesus mentions uh, clothes and garments. Now, again, Jesus is so precise in the way he customizes his letter because Sardis was a town that was known for making clothes. There was a clothing industry there in Sardis. And so Jesus used what Sardis did as a city to describe the faithful people that remained in the church. He said, there are those in your church who have not soiled your clothes. You've not soiled your garments. If you're wondering, well, what, does, what does soiled mean? <laughs> well, it means that they had kept clean. They kept pure. They didn't get dirt on their clothes. They were able to keep the grease off of their garments and the mud and the, the spots and, and the barbecue sauce or, or whatever it might be that was getting on their clothes. They didn't need to use heavy-duty OxyClean to get their garments clean. They stayed loyal to Jesus. They stayed faithful to him. They remained pure and set apart. And that's the kind of people that Jesus is looking for. That's the kind of people that Jesus deserves. That's the kind of people that Jesus is coming back for, by the way. Amen. Right? He says he's coming back for a bride, his church, that is without spot or wrinkle. People that are fully alive in him. Jesus 
had some half-siblings, and his half-brother, James, wrote the book of James. And he wrote this in chapter 1, verse 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now, he's not advocating that we can't be in the world. We just can't be of the world, right? In fact, Jesus has called us to be in the world so that we can reach the world. We can't reach the world if we're not in the world, but we're not to be tainted by the world. And when we're walking in the completeness and fullness of the Holy Spirit, he gives us the boldness and the power and the strength to stand firm and love well and to keep our garments from being tainted. Even Jesus hung out with people that were of the world, didn't he? But he never let them taint him. And the church of Sardis had a lot of people with stained garments. There was no discernible difference between them and society because they had become so cultured and so secularized. But there was a remnant, Jesus said, who wasn't caving to culture. There was a remnant who remained pure before God. There was a remnant who feared God more than they feared people. There was a remnant who wouldn't put Jesus on the shelf. There was a remnant who wouldn't deny Jesus as the only way. And this is what Jesus had to say about it in Matthew chapter 10. Everyone who acknowledges me, that's Jesus, before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. So when the work or the school or the government asks us to compromise our faith in Jesus Christ, we don't deny him. We stay faithful to him. And we can do it in a nice way. We don't have to be mean and ugly about it. We don't have to be jerks about it when they ask us to go against our biblical convictions, right? We can, we can still be nice. We can say, hey, listen, love you, but I just can't participate in that. I'm more loyal to Jesus Christ. My allegiance is to him. And, and think about it. It was Jesus that paid the penalty for your sin. It was Jesus that laid down his life so that you could have life. So why would I deny him? You know, maybe you've been in a position like this. You've been with a friend or a relative and things got a little dicey, uh, whatever the situation was. And to kind of save their necks, to save their rear end, they, uh, they kind of disassociated themselves from you for just a moment. You might call that throwing them under the bus. Anybody ever been thrown under the bus? <laughs> yeah. Some of you have thrown people under the bus too, I'm sure. <laughs> what an interesting saying that is, right? Threw me under the bus. I was, I, that kind of tickled me when I was writing the sermon, so I kind of looked it up. Like, where did that even come from, right? Where did, where did that come from? So I was looking it up and uh, couldn't find a definitive answer, but here was, uh, here was an answer, one of my favorites, about a fictional story of a guy named Harry who pushed his friend in front of a bus. 
<laughs> with friends like that, right? Uh, the friend lay there after being ran over by the bus. He laid there unconscious, perhaps about to die. And Harry goes and picks the guy's pocket, takes his wallet, goes and eats a steak dinner, and goes on a shopping spree. Now listen, if you don't get anything else out of day, I'd just say, be careful at bus stops, okay? Just, <laughs> just write that down, right? <laughs> but throwing someone under the bus is an act of betrayal, right? Now listen, every single one of us, Jesus could have thrown us under the bus, but he didn't. So we're not about to throw Jesus under the bus. We're not about to deny his lordship in our life. Then he concludes with this, verse five. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. So he's going back to the garment theme again. And I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. This is so cool. Even when we mess up, even when we sin, if we repent, Jesus can take that dirty, muddy, soiled garment and give us a brand new white garment without spot, without wrinkle, declaring that our sins have been washed away. And he says, I'm never gonna blot your name out of the book of life. Did you know that Jesus has a book called the book of life? You might be asking, well, what's the book of life? I wonder what that's all about. Well, the book of life is just a registry in heaven that has the names of every single person that has made Jesus Christ the Lord and Savior of their life. It's a registry in heaven of those that have had their sins blotted out and forgiven and are justified. And here's what's cool, to bring it all back together with the Holy Spirit, how we talked about. With the Holy Spirit inside of us, He's going to help us to be conquerors and overcomers. So our names will never have to be removed from the book of life. And check this out. He says, you're going to be named by me in front of the heavenly hosts in heaven. What greater reward could be than Jesus himself standing in heaven, opening the book, saying, hey, angels, hey, hosts of angels, come check this out. There he is. There's Patrick, there's Jess, there's Adam, there's Kathy, there's Bob. She's mine, he's mine. Check it out, here they are. Those are my children. And they're gonna live forever with me in heaven. Isn't that cool? Jesus is so great. And we don't wanna be found spiritually dead, do we? It's so easy. I'm the first to raise my hand. It happens to me. I can fall into the routine and the motions of it all. But I sure hope that my character matches the reputation, right? That the internal matches the external. What a terrible indictment to say that people are saying great things about you, but God doesn't have very nice things to say about you. We hope today's message was a blessing to you. If you'd like to connect with us, please visit calvarymd.com and fill out the connection card in our website. We'd love to partner with you on your spiritual journey. We'll see you right back here next week.